I am a Jew, born five years after the Holocaust ended. I had a liberal religious upbringing. And although I'm no longer observant, I still culturally identify as a Jew. Growing up, I encountered a modest amount of anti-Semitism, name-calling, schoolyard fights, and occasional social exclusion. Not enough to scar, quite the opposite. It was one more way, beyond family and religious holidays, that instilled a sense of Jewishness in me. That's a long-winded way of saying, being Jewish doesn't affect my sleep. I have friends who occasionally have nightmares about being put on a train to Auschwitz. I've only ever had that kind of anxiety dream once. I wouldn't normally talk about it, but as it happened exactly 40 years ago, in the autumn of 1973, when everything changed, and involved a prescient vision, it is worth telling you about. I was living in Hollywood, just below Sunset Boulevard, on North Mansfield Avenue, nowhere near as grand as it sounds. Less than three weeks earlier, I had been living in London, my money running out, a return ticket to the U.S. weighing heavily in my pocket. Now, after a couple of weeks of rewriting medical articles into something like English, I had earned enough to make it to L.A., move in with my college girlfriend, who I thought had dumped me but apparently hadn't, and find work in the film business. Actually, it was work in a film lab and really had nothing to do with making movies, but the film business, nevertheless. My plan, work for a while, save as much as I could, convince the girl to move back to London with me. The ease with which I crossed an ocean and a continent is a comment not just on youthful rootlessness, but on the particular economics of the time. Cheap oil, petrol was 36 cents a gallon, and plentiful work. The unemployment rate was 4.6%, meant wages rising ahead of inflation. A few weeks of work was a stake to the next city, the next relationship, if you didn't require palatial digs and what was not yet called a lifestyle. My girlfriend was not Jewish. She was of Teutonic stock and looked it. Blonde, brown-eyed, sharp features. Forty years ago, it was only just becoming common for people from our very different backgrounds to have relationships. We even joked about the incongruity of her extreme Aryan appearance coupled to my undisguised Jewish sensibility, particularly my sense of humor irony and absurdity used to express moral outrage. We were serial viewers of Woody Allen movies. She saw herself as Diane Keaton. I don't think she confused me physically with Woody, but his humor is a lot easier for outsiders to take than Philip Roth's. Besides humor, another way my Jewish sensibility manifests itself is around Yom Kippur. As I said, I'm not observant, but the Day of Atonement is a day I pay attention to. It's a matter of private contemplation as I go about other tasks. So on the eve of Yom Kippur 40 years ago, I'm sure it was in my mind, and that is the only way to explain my dream. That year, Yom Kippur fell on Shabbat, the Sabbath. It was Friday night. The religious holiday had begun. We had made love. We were young and always made love, and passed out. And then came the dream. Israel was under attack, and Jews were being rounded up in America, and my girlfriend was dressed in a Nazi uniform and ordering me into a wooden-sided boxcar heading for a death camp. It sounds like a bad-taste comic daydream in a Woody Allen film, but it was a genuine nightmare. I shook my way out of it, immediately started to minimize the images to get control of the fear, told myself it was just a really weird dream. Calm down. 
but here is the genuinely weird thing. Around the time I was having that dream, Israel was indeed under attack. It was being invaded by Syria in the north and Egypt in the west. The Yom Kippur War was underway. The surprise of the dream is underscored by the surprise of the attack. In the new saturated environment of today, it's easy to imagine people dreaming about events they might only have glimpsed as a headline while going to their email account or looking at their Twitter feed. In 1973, there was none of that cyber flotsam, not even 24-hour television news channels, nothing to seed the subconscious. And even if there had been, it's possible nothing would have been out there. The war came as a surprise to the Israelis, although when five divisions of the Egyptian army are massed in battle formation on the west bank of the Suez Canal, it begs the question, what were they thinking? The facts as they have been established by historians and commissions of inquiry say this is what happened. On October 6th, at two in the afternoon local time, Dreamtime in L.A., the Egyptian Air Force launched attacks on Israeli positions in the Sinai. Shortly after, 32,000 Egyptian troops crossed the Suez Canal. On the Israeli side of the waterway, which had not been in use since the previous war in 1967, 450 soldiers in a string of fortified positions tried to hold them off. At the same time, Syria launched airstrikes and an artillery barrage, the preliminary softening up attack before sending its five divisions into battle to reclaim the Golan Heights. Again, the Israeli forces were woefully undermanned. And it was the one day of the year when the Israelis' famous capability of mobilizing their citizen army in a heartbeat was not possible. Annihilation is an extraordinary word. For most people today, the word is used primarily as rhetorical enhancement, mostly to describe lopsided sporting victories. We didn't just beat the other team, we annihilated them. But for Jews, it's a word that still conveys its original meaning from the mid-16th century, when the term first came into use, to obliterate, reduce to nothing. The war was exactly 40 years ago. Precisely 40 years earlier, in 1933, there was no Israel, and most of the world's Jews lived in Europe. So now it is 1973, and there are virtually no Jews left in Central and Eastern Europe. The life and culture of the people have been obliterated, annihilated. But Israel exists, and from the north and from the west, it is hemorrhaging casualties. 656 dead, 2,000 wounded in the first eight days of fighting. In a country with a population of just 3 million at that moment, if you extrapolate it to a population the size of America, that is the equivalent of more than 200,000 casualties. It is terrifying, because after the ease of victory in the 1967 war, many Israelis had begun to feel secure. For Jews anywhere, security is a very rare feeling. But in Israel, that disappeared. Reminiscing recently about those early days of the war, my Israeli friend Lily recalled not having news of her husband, who had rushed off to join his unit and gone up to defend the Golan, an hour's drive from their home in Jerusalem. Days and days without news. Other women at home with children felt the same. Fear brewed up in an unprecedented information vacuum. And my friend understood the army. She had already served in it. The terror did not translate across an ocean and continent to Los Angeles. Concern, yes. 
terror, no. Possibly because the news then wasn't an uncontextualized constant flow of information, much of it inaccurate. The daily summaries allowed someone like me, not within firing range, and with all loved ones present and accounted for, to calmly notice that the initial Egyptian and Syrian attacks had been stemmed. So much else was going on while the war raged ten time zones away. The Watergate scandal had reached a peak. Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned. Henry Kissinger and the North Vietnamese negotiator Le Duc Tho were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, despite the fact that the war in Vietnam rumbled along. After that first week, an inevitability took hold about the war's outcome. And so it turned out. The war would drag on until the end of October. After the initial rout, the Israeli Defense Force counterattacked. By the time the two superpowers, the U.S. and Soviet Union, said enough and forced the combatants to accept a ceasefire, the Israeli army was an hour's drive from Damascus and had recrossed the Suez Canal and encircled the Egyptian Third Army. The military situation was pretty much what it had been before the war started, yet for those involved, this major event of autumn 1973 is still remembered as the moment when everything changed. Lily, whose husband came home alive and whom she eventually divorced, still thinks of it that way. It changed everything because, for one week at least, it seemed possible that Israel would lose. And defeat in a war, Israelis know, leads to annihilation. Her view is held in retrospect, but even at the time it was a view Israelis were able to express. In an opinion piece for the New York Times, published on October 21st, Amnon Rubinstein, an Israeli lawyer and peace activist, wrote, There are no more doves left in Israel. Historians will refer to this war as a turning point in the Middle East, if only because of this definitive change of mood. Very few pieces of analysis published in the New York Times have ever been so accurate. Israel's right wing had always been fragmented, but within weeks of the war's end, five of the country's right-wing parties coalesced into a single group, the Likud. It means consolidation in Hebrew, under the leadership of Menachem Begin. Elections in December gave the new bloc 30% of the vote. By Israeli standards, this made them a formidable opposition. By 1977, the party would be elected to government, and its expansionist ideology would come to redefine Israel. The Likud has ruled for most of the last 40 years, occasionally in coalition or governments of national unity. And on the Arab side, too, things changed. This would be the last time that the massed armies of the Arab Middle East would take on Israel in a war. More than a decade ago, I spent time in Jerusalem making a radio documentary about the city's disposition as the final part of the peace puzzle. The Second Intifada, which would send everything back to square one, was only just underway. The suicide bombings and rocket attacks that would lead to the construction of the separation wall and ultimately the frozen neverworld of today's peace process had not happened yet. But tourism was already suffering. In Awad Street, the main drag running through the old city's Arab quarter from the Damascus Gate to the Kotel, or Western Wall, the Palestinian souvenir shop owners were suffering badly. A man about my age saw me recording some street sounds and beckoned me over to his empty shop. His English was good, and we started chatting about business, which was terrible, and about the iniquity of the Israelis, which was never-ending. But he also spoke of his disappointment in his brother Arabs. 
Where is the Arab nation? Where are the Arab armies? he demanded. When will they come? How to explain to him? Never. That since the autumn of 1973, when he and I were just taking on the responsibilities of adulthood, the Arab nation's leaders had each made their own arrangements. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat would make peace with the Likud's Begin and pay with his life. To preserve stability in their own rule, accommodation with Israel and with the United States and the West meant that no Arab armies would be coming to the Palestinian shopkeeper's rescue. Despite its inconclusive ending, the Yom Kippur War, Ramadan War, October War, whatever you want to call it, did not permanently change life for just the competence. It changed it for all of us, although that wasn't clear to me at the time. The autumn of 1973 was a time of such self-absorption that I hardly had time to notice the war's effect. My relationship was already fraying, and when I ended it, it had nothing to do with my sleep-disturbing sense of our cultural differences. It had to do with the realization that I was not going back to England any time soon, because as a result of the war, the price of oil was already rising dramatically, and inflation was metastasizing across the West with the UK particularly hard hit. No matter how many hours I worked or how much I saved, I could not save enough to get back to London. It was time for a life plan B. But that's another story.